Hi there, and uh, welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people who want to fully engage in the world, be their best selves, really contribute to their community, uh, all while staying sane, while staying whole, while staying healthy and alive. Uh, In other words, without getting overwhelmed and while still keeping the body in shape. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess for the show, and today I want to talk a bit about perfectionism. Uh, This is actually a subject that I love, not because I love perfectionism, but because uh, it's actually what I did my final project in during my graduate studies. So, hmm, how should I put this? When I'm talking about perfectionism, I want to be really clear here, I'm not talking about healthy striving. Um, and I really love that. I think it's Brene Brown who who distinguishes between those two things best. So there's a lot of uh, content out there that says, oh, well, there's such a thing as good perfectionism and bad perfectionism. The good kind is when you're reaching really far and you're stretching yourself, but you're not allowing yourself to be uh, sort of, I don't know, derailed by it. Whereas the bad perfectionism is the neurotic kind. And frankly, I... I don't know a good word for that other than just retarded. Um, So in my mind, perfectionism just, it's never good. There's never a good kind of perfectionism. By definition, at least the first definition that comes up when I researched perfectionism, it's the refusal to tolerate anything short of perfection or flawlessness. Here's the thing. Life is not flawless. Uh, that's not how life works. I mean, it's perfect in that life is always doing exactly what it was always going to do. You know, I'm behaving right now exactly the way I was always going to behave. And maybe part of that is genetics. Maybe part of that is socialization. But, you know, that's me. It's who I am. And it's how I'm behaving. And that's perfect. But it's sure not flawless. So, I don't know. It's... Perfectionism, in my mind, is this mirage that we're always trying to get to and we never reach because it's not real. Healthy striving, on the other hand, is, you know, looking to something that you want to reach for and moving toward it, knowing that you're not there yet and reveling in the journey. So, for example, I am what I am. And that's as it should be. I'm not perfect. The closest, I mean, again, it's like I'm perfect in that this is how I am and it was never going to be any different. So I guess that's perfectly imperfect. Um, But I have so many flaws and I love most of them, or at least I think I do, question mark. Um, But there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve. You know, I'm an anxious little bean. I'm a yes man. I'm... I'm constantly uh, taking on more than I should and then having to figure out how to gracefully take some of what I just put on my plate back off again. All kinds of stuff that I'm working on. And it's good to be able to identify it and say, that's something good to work on. But it's not good to say, if I don't fix that, that says something bad about who I am as a human being. All right, well, anyway, I'm going to move on. Why should I be talking about this in the like in the context of a highly sensitive people podcast? <laughs> Well, part of the reason is because highly sensitive people are disproportionately more likely to be perfectionistic. 
which should kind of make sense. Highly sensitive people tend to have a, a bit more attention to detail, so they're probably going to key into things that aren't going well. Uh, highly sensitive people are also... Uh, they, I don't know how to say it. They don't like conflict. They really they like it when things are copacetic and neutral and happy. And so at the office, when they produce a project that is perfect, they imagine that they will be safe. If they behave perfectly, they will be safe. So there's this sense that perfectionism is a shield, that if we wear it every day, we'll be safe from harm. The reality is just not there. The reality is the opposite, in fact. So, you know, there are multiple ways that this can surface. Interpersonally, perfectionism can look like trying to be the perfect wife, be the perfect mother. Uh, it can also surface as, you know, in the, in the realm of looking for that perfect person, that perfect relationship. You know, oh, she, she does this and she does that, and I really appreciate her for doing this and that and the other thing. But God, if she could just stop doing her hair for an hour a day, I, I don't know, I'm just thinking of something random, then that would make it the perfect partner. Well, I mean, there's something to be said for wanting to find the right relationship with the right amount of conflict, which is to say maybe not very much for a highly sensitive person, but you're never going to find the perfect person. So interpersonally, perfectionism ends up making people feel isolated. And by people, I mean us, us highly sensitive folks. If I'm constantly trying to be the perfect mother, I am isolating myself and insulating myself from being real. So there's this really beautiful line, and I believe it's The Nightingale. I'd have to double check that, but the it's a novel. And the narrator, narrator in the story says, you know, for so much in my life, for so long in my life, I, oh, I thought that I wanted to be loved and admired. But, you know, now I just think I'd like to be known. And that really hits home. A lot of highly sensitive people spend, waste, <laughs> so much energy trying to be loved and admired. And we sacrifice our true selves. We, we sacrifice the opportunity of really being known as a whole person. With flaws and ebbs and angles and all of that. So interpersonally, perfectionism, whether it's I'm trying to be perfect for you or I'm looking for the perfect person for me, it just causes isolation. And quite frankly, have you ever met the perfect mother or the perfect wife? or the? Have you met that person who really seems to be doing it all and doing it flawlessly and doing it without, you know, sweat or mud or muck or complaint? I've known people like that, and I gotta tell you, I don't want to hang out with them very long. <laughs> like, they're not any fun. You know, they, they, don't, they don't know how to laugh, or to the extent they do, they laugh at only the right things, and it, it's sort of a little jarring and nerve-wracking. I connect with people much more when they're vulnerable around me, when they're willing to say, oh my god, can I tell you what happened yesterday? I screwed up. Oh lordy. I mean, it's like, oh thank god, you do that too. <laughs> Oh, I'm not the only one. You know, being willing to be flawed is, in my experience, a seed to connection. So, anyway, uh, it can also surface in our careers. 
you know, if I just behave perfectly, if I do the work perfectly, if I do all of this without complaint, etc., then I'll I'll move up in the ladder, or I will be considered. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. What's the opposite of expendable? Necessary? Well, I don't know. Um, anyway, I just won't be considered expendable. I guess I'll I'll be considered essential. That's the word I'm looking for. Well, <laughs> turns out though, in in work, it's not. People who do things perfectly and they do it without complaint are often taken for granted. And I don't mean that we shouldn't all be doing our best and really striving to do good work. That's not what I'm saying at all. We absolutely should. But boundaries, I think, is the word that's coming to my mind. Often highly sensitive people strive for perfection and... They exhaust themselves doing it without setting any boundaries and all the while without communicating to other people, hey, you know, I'd really like some help here. Because to ask for help would mean to admit I'm not perfect. I can't do it all. Well, that's all well and good, but people aren't going to know that. It's not even that your boss will be purposefully taking advantage of you. Maybe he or she will, who knows. But really and most likely what's going to be the case is people will just assume that you got this. You're fine. You're good. You're swimming. You're great. You're you're the diva. You're the rock star. And they're they'll love you, but they may not necessarily respect you. Not because you're not respectable, but because you're invisible. You know, you you become part of the well-oiled machine. You become background. I mean, of course you're gonna do it. You always do it, and you always do a great job when you do it. So naturally. You'll be handed more work, perhaps, than you should take on. And maybe it's meant as a compliment. Who knows? But if you don't admit what your flaws are, or if you're not willing to just, you know what, okay, fine, you're going to give me all this work. I'm going to, I'll get it done. It won't be the best quality in the world, but it'll get done. You know, C's get degrees, and people who get it done always fare better than those who get it perfect. So... In the realm of health, I don't know if you guys have heard of this term before, uh, but in the realm of health, perfectionism can come up in the form of orthorexia. This is a thing, ladies and gentlemen. It's real. So uh, the definition of orthorexia is an unhealthy preoccupation with healthy living, and it's most often used in the context of an unhealthy preoccupation with healthy eating. So what does that really look like? It looks like the person who's late for his grandfather's funeral because he couldn't miss a moment at the gym. Uh, it looks like the person who um, will starve rather than eat slightly unhealthy food. So at a, a gathering or something, they say, oh, well, I would eat pizza, but unfortunately, uh, I only eat paleo. I mean, and I'm not talking about when you have an allergy, that's that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of person who, where they are no longer the ones engaging in health practices, but rather healthy practices have taken ownership of their way of life to such an extent that it's inhibiting their ability to live life fully and joyfully. So again, if you're that person who always brings your own food, more power to you. I actually do that too because I just don't like going hangry. Um, I, I like eating healthily too, but I've got to tell you, if I'm starving and I'm out in the middle of nowhere and someone says, well, but there's a pizza joint, 
I will probably eat it. I won't like it, but I'll eat it. It's fine. There are times that I've certainly flirted with orthorexia. I think that happens with a lot of wellness coaches and certainly highly sensitive coaches in particular. So yeah, why is it a problem in your health? Well, because it's unhealthy. (laughs) I mean, it's great to eat well and to move your body with delight and all of that stuff is terrific. You know, in fact, I I have a Fitbit on right now as we are speaking and this thing tells me every hour that I should be moving 250 steps and it gives me sort of a 10 minute warning whenever I, uh, you know, haven't done that and so I've got 10 minutes to move and get my feet going. And I'm sitting and I'm doing this podcast. And right now, although I value my health and I understand why I should be moving 250 steps at least every hour, this particular project is more important to me than those 250 steps. Now, I'm more than happy to, you know, move around a lot more later. That's all well and good. But if I were to stop what I'm doing with this podcast just to get up and do those 250 steps, now my Fitbit is using me. I'm no longer using my Fitbit. The thing is a tracker. But if, you know, an orthorexic individual would look at that and say, "Uh uh-oh, I better just A, pause, B, redo the whole dang thing because, you know, I want it to be perfect, and C, get these 250 steps in. Uh, For the record, I've only gotten 22 steps this hour. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) so even us health coaches, we ain't perfect. And finally, in the realm of creativity, I can't tell you how many uh, highly sensitive folks that I've listened to, uh, they, most of those who are connected and, and with themselves and self-aware and who uh, identify as being highly sensitive will talk about how important creativity is, uh, how important it is to have a creative outlet. So this is an example of my creative outlet. I love to chat about health and wellness and high sensitivity. So this is creativity to me. This is where I get to play. I also get to play when I write. Uh, I get to play when I have philosophical discussions with friends. Yes, I am that ridiculous, and yes, I am that nerdy. I'm just going to own it. Uh, <laughs> um, I get to play when I run and move. I love to do those things as well. So, but, you know, in particular when I dance, I should say, like that's my way of expressing myself creatively is dancing. So anyway, creativity and perfectionism are not good bedfellows. In fact, they're antagonists. Creativity is all about getting messy. You know, it's the person who's willing to go on the edge there and and try something new. Creativity is not about getting it right, because you can't get something that hasn't been created yet right. You can only get it done. (laughs) So, I mean, you can tinker with it afterward, and you can sort of fuss with it and play with it and whatever, but if you go into a creative enterprise hoping to be perfect in it, it will die. Whatever it is that's trying to come to life will die. So, in the end of the day, we think perfectionism will lend itself well to us, but in reality, it just paralyzes us, whether it's with our relationships, uh, our career. Often, perfectionists don't advance because they're not willing to take risks. In our health, you know, we're so busy trying to f- do everything perfectly, we forget that health is really about living well. <laughs> and uh, creativity, we, we don't create anything because we're too afraid of doing it wrong. All right, so let's get to the the real meat of this. What do we do about it? So let's say I I mean I for myself I've been battling well, I don't know if bad, I've been tr- keeping a leash on perfectionism for a long time. I mean I there are times when this pet of mine will come forth and it's almost like it there 
there are elements of it that I appreciate. So when I really want to, to do good quality work, I call upon that skill set to try my best, but I always want to keep it on a leash. What does that mean? <laughs> like, how do we keep perfectionism on a leash? How do we keep it at bay? So here's a couple of things that I know have helped me and uh, some evidence-based strategies that have helped others. One, at the end of each day, make a list of all the things that, you know, in terms of your interpersonal relationships. Make a list of all the imperfections you appreciate, appreciate about the people you love. Think about the people who you love most. And I dare you to try and tell me that they are perfect. I'm willing to bet my life savings on the fact that some of the things you love most about those people are their proposed imperfections. My mom is fiercely loving. Uh, she's also impulsive. She just goes with the flow. Sometimes being impulsive means getting into conflict. Sometimes it means that she's, you know, she gets herself into these messes that she has to dig herself out of. But if she wasn't that person, she wouldn't be my lovable mom. <laughs> it's because she's that way that she's able to tolerate imperfections in others, impulsivity in others, joy in others. You know, she's not worried about living life perfectly. She's just worried about living life well and well according to her own definition of what that means. Um, you know, I, I, when I think about my partner, you know, he's not a perfect person. I, I would sure as hell hope not. He wouldn't be any fun to hang out with. You know, he's this person who is a go-getter. He crushes it. He works his butt off in order to get things done. And sometimes that's a flaw because he's exhausts himself. You know, sometimes he forgets how to have fun in the process, but that's who he is. I love that about him. You know, he cares about the people around him. And he wants to fix what he, whatever he can and do the best of his ability to let go of that which he cannot. <laughs> so again, when I think about the things I love most about my, my best friend Connie or my partner Corey or my mom Paula or whatever, I don't think about what they do perfectly. What comes to my mind about the things I love about them is just is their uniqueness. And in many cases, the very things they claim to be flaws are the things I tend to love most. So... Make a list of the things you appreciate about the people you love. And then imagine what they might say about you. Think to yourself, what do you imagine people love most about you? Is it your perfection? Is it when you do good job on your performance evaluation? Or is it that you're there for them? You know, is it, do they love your laugh? Uh, do they love your sense of style? What do you imagine people would say about you? And... If you can, maybe write all of the things about yourself that you love and see if maybe all, one of those things or two or all don't have a shadow side to them. I'm a loving person. Personally, I, I, I have the capacity to put myself in the shoes of another person. And I love that quality about me. The downside is when people ask for my opinion and they ask, hey, you know, can you, can you just tell it to me straight? Pick a side. I'll be damned if I can't. I can't pick a side most of the time because I can see both sides of it with very few exceptions. I mean, again, I'm sure there are dictators all over the world doing horrible things that I can say with some amount of certainty that it's awful. <laughs> but for the most part, I spend most of my time looking for the good in people. The upside to that is that I find it. 
the downside to that is sometimes I miss out on things I should be paying attention for and I don't protect myself as I should. So it's a flaw, but I love it. Um, yeah, so so at work, so this is now moving away from relationships to now uh, in your place of work. Uh, make an effort to experiment with getting it done rather than getting it perfect. So if you've got a project you've got to get finished and there's other things that you want to get finished as well, just, you know, make a list or, you know, just make a list, silly Leah. See? Perfect example. Here's a blooper right there. Now, when that comes up, just get it done. Don't worry about needing to do it perfect. You'll procrastinate. It'll be awful. Just do it. Done is always better than perfect. Hands down. No exceptions. Done is always better than perfect. Just get it done. And if you have time afterward to tinker and make it right, then great. But just with it, just try and experiment one time. I guarantee you, no one will care. <laughs> so um, now moving into the realm of health. Health, I can't tell you how many people, will, especially as a health coach, will come to me and say, you know, I'm, I'm really comfortable in extremes. I'm either saying, well, screw it, I'll just eat whatever I want, or I'm cleansing, I'm on a diet, I'm whatever. I'm either not doing exercise at all, or I'm on an exercise plan. I am either, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Well, that just doesn't work. That's not how we build habits. So, in reality, the better way to do this is to look for upgrades. So, I mean, in fact, my, my partner had a great sort of uh, summary for this. He said, you know, it's like going from a speed zero to a hundred. And a lot of us spend our time either parked at a rest stop or hauling ass at 100 miles an hour. Well, in reality, it's better to kind of hang out at the 40 to 80 mile per hour range because that's what's sustainable and that's what's always going to move you forward. Health is not a destination. It's a process. It's a practice. You practice good health habits. You don't achieve good health. That's not how that works. The, the body is an organism. It's an ecosystem. It's constantly shifting and changing based on our climate, our, our environment, and, and our needs, and our hungers. and It's never homeostasis. It's always change. It's always just adapting and shifting. So our job isn't to find a destination of perfection in the realm of our health. It's to learn how to bend when we need to bend. It's learning how to be resilient. It's learning how to, to achieve maybe balance. So with regard to our health, it doesn't serve us to seek perfection because what we'll end up doing is nothing. We'll be paralyzed. In the realm of creativity, one thing you can do, so again, when perfectionism is, is stagnate, is causing a stagnation for you, set aside some time to purposefully fail at something. Like just, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to get this piece of paper out and I'm just going to scribble all over it. And I'm just going to see what comes up. And if nothing comes up, well, then who cares? I was trying to fail at it anyway. Because here's the thing. The most successful people in the world all report that they failed far more often than they succeeded. And often they failed big. And I, we don't become successful by doing things perfectly all the time. We become successful when we take risks when we self-advocate, when we get out there and we say, hey, I'm willing to try this, 
you know, Ted Roosevelt and his you know, man in the arena speech, you know, it is not for the critic to say, you know, not for the one who's standing on the sidelines, who's throwing shit at us from the sidelines and saying how awful we're doing. It's the man in the arena who's, who's sweating and, and just scraped up and is bleeding all over the place. That's the guy who's doing it because he knows in his heart of hearts that he is either going to win and know what victory really feels like or he'll fail, but he'll fail having dared greatly. So another way of looking at this is, you know, a lot of times in life coaching uh, sessions, people will ask these powerful questions. And one common powerful question is, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And I believe it was Brene Brown who actually countered that. And she said, you know, that's not really a useful question because we're all going to at some point. The better question to ask is, what's worth doing even if you do fail? That's where you want to set your mind at in the realm of creativity. That's where you want to sit when you're trying to be creative. So what are some systems you can put in place to help you with this? Because, I mean, this is all well and good to talk about, you know, making a journal entry of all that I did well and, you know, sort of thinking about the things that I already like about myself and really accepting the people I love for who they are and you know, being willing to do things imperfectly, you know, I, I can feel the vibes out there. You know, I imagine someone listening to this and going, yeah, 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 that's all well and good, but I still need to bring home the bacon at the end of the week, kid. <laughs> I mean, and I've been bringing home the bacon so far because I've done good work. And I see slackers out there and I don't want to be that slacker. You know what? Good for you. I, I, I completely hear that. I want to do that healthy striving too. But first of all, what does healthy striving look like? Well, it might help to have a kind of, you know, ballpark estimate. And the best person who described this in my mind is actually a hostess on the show, uh, The Guilty Feminist. So if you're a feminist and you like podcasts, highly recommend it. Uh, she said, you know, I, I find it's best when we're about 80% grateful for where we are, for how far we've come and 20% uncomfortable. She was referring to that in the context of social work, of, of political action, of moving ourselves forward and progressive, you know, progressing toward uh, ever more acceptance and embracing ever more cultural diversity. I thought it was useful in just about any context, though. Uh, you know, she used the analogy, you know, can you imagine if we were all just 100% grateful? You know, we, w we wouldn't have chairs. We'd all be sitting on the ground. Because, you know, we'd just be grateful for the ground, which I guess is fine, but it's because we're just 20% uncomfortable that, that we move a little bit more forward. So that might actually help you in each of these contexts. You know, when you're thinking about the people you love or you're looking for that perfect partner, you know, find that sweet spot where you're 80% grateful for how things are going as it is. You know, you know, that 80% amount where it's like you're you're an 80% good fit. <laughs> like I'm doing 80% good work as a mother, as a wife, as a whatever. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm doing my best here and I still can do a little bit better. You know, so 20, per, I'm 20% uncomfortable. I'm 80% grateful for how well I'm doing already. I'm 20% uncomfortable and willing to work harder. So that's that, what that sweet spot looks like, at least for me, in terms of healthy striving. And that can work, be in the realm of your work as well. You know, like be 80% grateful for the work you're already getting done. Just own that. But always leave a little, like that 20% portion to, to strive to be a little bit better. You know what? I finished this project. I am awesome for finishing this project. And I did it on time. 
next time that I do something like this, I'm going to try doing one thing a little bit better. That's all you got to do. I mean, so again, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It's not like you just have to park your tush on a chair someplace and say, well, I was told not to be perfect, so I'm just going to stay right here. No, that's not healthy either. But just find a healthier balance so that you you feel like you're moving forward a little bit each time, but you're still living your life as though you're exactly where you're supposed to be in the present. So that's a good way of thinking of it, but now sort of moving into more pragmatic tips and tricks. <laughs> um, one of the best things that I think you can put in place are systems. So I was reading an article just this morning, and it's by Susie Moore. She wrote it in Greatest. And she talks about how systems can help all of us achieve goals. So we set, you know, like for many of you, I'm sure are familiar with smart goals or smart skills. Uh, If you're not, I'll just really briefly go through them. A smart goal is a goal that is specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. So um, if I just said I wanted to lose weight, that's not a smart goal. Uh, A smart goal instead would be I'm going to run as fast as I can, you know, comfortably at least, for 20 minutes three times a week. It's specific. I've said what I'm going to be doing. It's measurable. I can measure it by virtue of how much time I spend. It's achievable, at least for me. Um, It might not be achievable for everyone, but that would be achievable for me. It's realistic, so it's not like I said I'm going to run a marathon this week, and it's Um, time-bound. I've said how long I'll go, how often, and by when, by the end of the week. So that's a SMART goal. And then SMART skills, just to really confuse you, yeah, same acronym, different thing. Um, it's when you are setting specific goals, you are monitoring your progress, you're arranging your world, you're recruiting support, and you're finding ways to reward, to treat yourself. So when you're setting a goal, one system you can put in place is the set of smart skills that I just referred to. Again, set the goal, make sure it's a smart goal. It's specific, measurable, observable, etc. In other words, you want it to be an action. What set a specific action? Do not say I'm going to lose a pound next week. Do not, because you have nothing to do with that. You can't make the scale do anything. You can only impact your actions. Weight is an outcome, not an action. Exercise, eating vegetables, drinking water, those are actions. So you know, you've set a specific goal, you have a means of monitoring your progress. So I monitor my steps on Fitbit, or I monitor my food by taking pictures of it and sending it to a coach. Uh, I can, I arrange my world. So, you know, something, I don't have ice cream in my freezer. Not because I don't love it, but because I do love it. And uh, not because I imagine that I, I mean, I, I have willpower, but I don't want to rely on my willpower muscle. So I arrange my environment to support myself. Um, recruit support. I have others who support me in this endeavor and then treat myself, you know, I reward myself with uh, meditation, I reward myself with a nap, I reward myself with, you know, time to do this stuff, time doing what I love. So how might you do that in the context of, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say how to do that in the context of fighting perfectionism. Rather, what I'm saying is, if you have a goal and you're finding that perfectionism is dampening your ability to achieve it, you can use smart skills as a means of moving forward even when you're not already perfect at it. So instead, if you want to run a marathon but you haven't run a day in your life, 
Well, set a SMART goal and apply the SMART skills to support you. You know, set a, a goal that you can achieve today. How are you going to monitor your progress this week? You know, how, how might you arrange your world? If you want to run, maybe you, maybe you dust off the treadmill and you take the laundry that's currently hanging all over it off. You know, if, maybe recruit support. Maybe find a running buddy and have a reward in place for yourself so that this is now a habit that you can put in place. Finally, this moves me back to Susie Moore. So you notice how I did that? I did that long tangent. Okay, well, Susie Moore is familiar with some of that stuff. But what she argues is also, you know, in addition, all of that stuff is good, but also put a system in place. One system can be what I just described with the smart skills, but it's also just about making it something you do all the time. So examples that she provides, let's say that you want to find a new job. Well, I'm, I'm actually currently looking for other work because the current, you know, I told, I, I've mentioned last week or and also probably the week before, um, I, one of the primary sources of my income is no longer coming in. So obviously I need to find a new job. I am not a big fan of looking for work. Um, I, it's not fun for me. And it can be a little daunting. It can be overwhelming. It can feel like, I, you know, I have to sell myself. I'm not particularly good at selling stuff anyway. Talk about a flaw. So I put in a system. I make a point to spend 10 to 20 minutes every day looking for jobs. And I promise myself I will apply to at least one job a week. Even if I'm not real crazy about it, I will do it. And even if it's not perfect, if my resume isn't perfect, if my cover letter isn't perfect, well then fine, but I'm getting it done. Because at some point, the more, I mean, I'm never going to get the job I didn't apply for. That's just a given. But I might get the job that I did apply for. So it's better to keep applying even if I'm not applying perfectly, whatever that even means, then to just say, oh, to heck with it, I'm not a good candidate, so why bother? Other examples that she has here, um, have a networking coffee with someone new every week. Allocate an hour per morning to do some fresh outreach. Consistently polish your LinkedIn profile and resume. Uh, so in other words, and this is all coming from, again, this is coming from uh, Moore, Susie Moore. So in other words, a system is what makes your goal real. It's concrete, it keeps you moving, and when you put a system into action, you'll be very likely to reach your goal because you have a map to get there. So you don't have to worry about getting to the destination in that case. Instead, it's just about committing to the actions that move yourself in that direction. Having systems in place can help counter perfectionism because you stop making better the enemy of best. You know, when you, you under-promise, you over-deliver. <laughs> Whether that's at the office or in the realm of your own creativity or interpersonally, you know, you just, you keep putting in systems to improve things a little bit more every day. So, having gone through all of that, I'd really love to hear from you. Uh, it, my email is uh, my first and last name, Leah Burkhart, L-E-A-H-B-U-R-K-H-A-R-T. 360 at gmail.com. Again, that's Leah Burkhart 360 at gmail.com. And if you're willing and, well, and, and if you want to, <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. You know, do you ever find yourself trapped by perfectionism? In what context for you? Like, is for you, do you find that you're pretty good at sort of going with the flow in most areas, but maybe in parenting it's really hard, or, or maybe it's at work you're great, but for some reason with your health you just. You, you get tightly wound around it. You know, what is the realm in which you find yourself most suffocated by perfectionism, if at all? 
And then finally, you know, my next question is what systems either have you put in place to support yourself and sort of move beyond that and, and move through it even as perfectionism is clawing at you? Or what systems might you put in place in the future so to, to combat or to rather support yourself through? I'd love to hear. So in the meantime, uh, as always, if you're interested in wellness coaching or if you just want to chat with me about any topics in the realm of health, wellness, high sensitivity, and the like, please feel free to reach out. And, uh, you know, otherwise, I will look forward to chatting with you again next week. Thanks so much. Be well. <laughs>